Good morning, everybody, and thank you for joining us today for um, another day of Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. It's back batting day. It's a Friday. Just pat yourself on the back for making it to the weekend. This is Tony Beam, Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brazier Campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference, and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. I also serve as Director of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention, and I'm currently the interim pastor at Five Forks Baptist Church over in Simpsonville. If you are unchurched, or if you don't have a church home, join us 1030 Sunday mornings. We'll be glad to have you there. Uh, we look forward to seeing you come up and talk to me. All right. Um, I had an opportunity yesterday to speak to the Greenville County Republican Women's Club, and I just want to thank them for being so gracious. Uh, they, they treated me like royalty. I mean, it was, it was pretty amazing. And um, I had an opportunity to talk about sort of the history of the failure of pro-life legislation in South Carolina and what the prospects are for getting a bill passed before the end of the session, and we just had a, a, a great conversation. I mean, I, uh, I spoke for about 25 minutes and then took uh, a number of questions. And, um, uh, again, just I want to thank Julie Hershey for inviting me um, and thank all those all the, the great ladies that were there. And uh, there were a lot of men there as associate members. So um, it was it was definitely – a good opportunity, and I enjoyed it very much. Hope maybe some of them are even listening this morning. So uh, yesterday also, Impact is the name of the conference that I went to yesterday. I want to thank Corey Truax and Lisa Van Riper for doing hour number one and hour number two for me yesterday, respectively. Um, uh, the, the conference was great. A lot of South Carolina Baptist pastors, leaders enjoyed a day of worship and just talking about how church works and how to make church effective in the 21st century, how we can reach people for Christ, how we can address the myriad of problems that we have in this country, and how the truth, as represented in God's Word and ultimately represented in the person of Jesus Christ, is our only hope. It's, it, it really is. had many conversations with uh, leading church pastors yesterday about this, and uh, we just—I just enjoyed my time getting to see some um, some good friends that I don't get to see that often, because uh, usually I'm running up and down the road to Columbia or doing something else. So, um, in any event, it was it was a great day. Thank you to G- DJ Horton; he's the pastor at uh, at the Mill over in Spartanburg. They've got just an incredible ministry there. Uh, one of the largest, most effective churches in, in South Carolina, uh, amazing facilities, and a staff that can really knows how to make people feel at home. So thanks to all of, of them and, of course, the South Carolina Baptist Convention. Um, Brian Sims was there. He's the director of denominational Re- relations for the convention. And, of course, I was there representing the Office of Public Policy and North Greenville University. And um, it was a it was a good day, really good day. So, um, hope you're going to be looking forward to a great weekend. Just a quick reminder: 
um, about the future here. March 31st is going to be the last day for his radio talk. 919-897 is going to become a music format uh, on April 3rd. Gary Miller Miller is retiring. March 31st will be his last day. And um, we appreciate the loyalty of a lot of people that have listened to this show over the years. We know this is not a huge uh, show. I don't have um, that, you know, a huge audience, maybe like some other talk radio shows, even in the upstate. But we've got a very loyal audience and um, and, and a good, a good-sized audience. We've had, you know, I, and I know that from a lot of the interactions that I have with you when I'm out different places speaking. So uh, this show is going to hang around in a different form. I'm working on a website right now that hopefully soon maybe as early as next week, I can start giving you the the address of that website so you can start getting it in your mind. You can go there and listen in the mornings uh, from 7.30 to 8.30. I'll be streaming live. And then what I do on that program, which is going to be called Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam, um, that will be posted later that day, and you'll be able to download it as a podcast. You, you can subscribe and I'm going to cover the news um, in an hour, the, the top stories or comment on the top stories of the day of the week. But it'll be Monday through Friday. It'll still be live by streaming on the website. And you can, if you have a smartphone or a tablet, you can uh, Bluetooth that up with your car and you can actually listen while you're on the way to work. I mean, what I do, I've got a, one of those cup holder, phone holder things and uh, it just goes right down in the cup holder, and you put the um, the phone up there. And when once I get the phone connected Bluetooth to my truck, then I can play any podcast I want to listen to, audio books, um, you know, uh, oldies. I mean, I get I'm, whatever's on my phone, I can listen to. It becomes my connector through my car, and so you can do that. The, you can get the website, put it on your phone. And uh, you'll, there'll be a way to do that, and then you can just listen through your car. All right. Um, let, me, let me just do a little preview here before we get rolling on the stories and things we're going to talk about today. One of the things uh, we're going to talk about is the battle of Donald Trump with Pete Buttigieg. And the prize was Palestine, Ohio. And I'm just telling you, uh, even before we get started in the depth of the conversation, talk about actually what happened. Uh, President Trump won this battle. Uh, Buttigieg wasn't even, I mean, he was really a non-factor in his visit, while President Trump had a major impact because of the manner in which he visited the town. And as opposed to a government official who made an official visit, looked very official, acted official, and didn't seem like he really cared much about the people. He just wanted to make a speech. So uh, Trump's response was much different, and his political instincts, as usual, um, honestly, were very good in the fact that he actually went. I think Trump going to pa- Palestine and staying, um, was a motivating factor to get Buttigieg there. You know, it had been 20 days since this derailment and chemical disaster for these people in East Palestine. And, um, yeah, you know, no, really, re- the response from the government, I mean, the lower-level officials, uh, they've been coming and doing analysis and passing out testing and all of this, but not really touching the people on the ground, that is, making connection with them, hearing them, talking to them, 
um, demonstrating any kind of care and concern for them. And so that's that's really cost the Biden administration. It was a missed opportunity for them in terms of political capital, but it was not an opportunity that President Trump was going to miss. So, so how does President Trump ride into East Palestine? He comes in with trucks filled with supplies, bottled water, uh, Trump water. Now, he's being criticized, of course, for suggesting that people ought to drink the bottled water and not be drinking the water, even though the Biden administration has been very conflicted about this. There's been a lot of, of statements about the safety of the water that seem to be conflicted by others coming out and saying we're, we're continuing to test, um, but we're urging people to drink the water. You know, I'd, if, if the water has to be tested before I drink it, I think I'm going to drink bottled water because it, it testing suggests that there's there's still chemicals in the water that could do me in or do me harm at at the very least. So, um, you know, I, I don't blame people for being skeptical, particularly when you consider the mixed signals that they've been getting. But President Trump didn't bring any mixed signals. He just waltzed into East Palestine on Wednesday, chided the Biden administration for the lack of their response. You know, the the FEMA they they taught at first they said well we really can't be a state of emergency doesn't fit that that would um, mean that just FEMA would be responding this is not really a FEMA issue this is National Transportation Safety Board we don't want to get into their way let me tell you something when you live in a community that's been devastated like this and you're afraid to drink the water and you don't really know whether the air you're breathing is going to hurt you or not people don't want to hear a lot of stuff about FEMA about what their procedures are or who ought to go first the National Transportation Safety Board or Donald Duck I mean this is you know that that's not the kind of thing that people are tuned into they want to know who's going to come here help us get our lives back to normal we're 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 floundering here we don't know whether to drink the water we don't know whether to hold our breath we don't you know we don't know what all the fish dying is about we don't know why some of our animals are dying we i mean on and on and on they've been people have been reporting respiratory issues so Donald Trump just rides in over the top of all that and brings in bottled water, goes to McDonald's, hands out Big Macs to people. I mean, he talks to people. He talks that he speaks their language. He wades into the crowd and is basically building political capital. Now, granted, this is Trump country. I mean, they voted for him 60 uh, percent plus in 2020. So he knew that he was going to be walking into friendly territory. He knew that by doing this, he was upstaging the federal government because Pete Buttigieg didn't show up until the next day. In fact, we're not even sure that Buttigieg would have gone if President Trump hadn't upstaged him and gone ahead of him. But it became imperative for Buttigieg to go after Trump showed up on Wednesday. And Trump comes in with his overcoat, with his with the bottles of water, and Buttigieg puts on a, a hard hat and stands there with a with a bunch of local officials, but and and they're um, you know, people who are dealing with the waterworks and all this, but he doesn't really come in contact with the common person at, at the event. I mean at, when while he's there. 
and and when I say at the event, it really was an event. It was a it was a staged event to try to get Buttigieg off the hook, because when the when the derailment first happened, he kept talking about equity when it comes to the construction business and that there's not enough minorities on construction crews, while you have a major train derailment and he's Secretary of Transportation. And if you look at, at what's happened with, while he's been Secretary of Transportation, I mean, we've had supply chain issues. We've had an airline debacle where we had airlines having to cancel flights uh, because of the COVID vac- vaccine, a lot of the p- pilots not showing up for work, um, all of this disrupting transportation and where was Pete Buttigieg? I mean, was he uh, was he on his honeymoon with the, the the guy that he's married to? I mean, a lot of people were asking these kind of questions. So now you've got this train derailment, and you've got several of them, and Buttigieg has been addressing them from his office in Washington or making the media tour. And this is the thing that progressives can always count on. The reason they want to go to the media is because they know the media is going to give them cover. The media is going to be gentle with them. The media is going to make them look like heroes. But there's no way to ditch the comparison between Donald Trump's hands-on, talk-to-the-people, bring bottled water, hand out Big Mac's approach to Pete Buttigieg showing up after 20 weeks and he won't really answer any questions about why. You know, he, he likes to say, well, I, I want, didn't want to get in the way of, of Norfolk Southern because they're, they're doing their examination. I didn't want to get in the way of the National Transportation Safety Board. Uh, no, people just want to know you're not, you're not going to be in the way if they come, if you come and talk to us, give us some kind of plan about what's going to happen to our future um, that you can you assure us that these chemicals that are in the ground that are in the water that maybe are in the air we're breathing I mean is this going to affect us long term that's what they'd like to hear from their government officials and of course Pete Buttigieg comes in and looks like a cookie cutter politician I mean with the hard hat I mean (laughs) it's hilarious this is what's the hard hat going to do I mean, is that supposed to protect him from the chemicals in the air? Is that was was there anything falling, or was there any risk of him getting in the hit, hit in the head? No, this was a a pure photo op. I mean, there's a story out there that says that Buttigieg was kept waiting for about 30 minutes while the mayor by the mayor of uh, East Palestine because he was meeting with Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani. So, a a, a stark comparison here between the Biden's sanitized, bureaucratic, federal government response and President Trump's political instincts, his genuine care and concern for the people that he demonstrated by showing up in person and actually having conversations with him, which this is this is probably the best move that President Trump has made since he announced his reelection. I mean, for the most part, he's been having smaller rallies. He's been launching attacks against uh, announced candidates and possible future candidates. Like he's gone after Nikki Haley. He's gone after Ron DeSantis. And while all of that is is very Trumpy in the sense that that's what President Trump does, this and and to me that's the that's the worst side of President Trump. This is the best side, not not because it really made a significant difference 
in the people's lives, but it made it it gave the perception of care, concern, and and the president, former president, was exactly right in his criticism of the Biden administration. And if he'd just gone there and made a speech, or if he'd have gone there and and held a rally, but he shows up with truckloads of water. He's passing them out to passing it out to people. He's hearing them, having conversations, talking to people, speaking their language, and that's what long has enamored people with President Trump as a person. He's personable. They know it. They they believe that even though he's this billionaire, he understands where they're coming from, um, and he doesn't ride over the top. I mean, he knows the McDonald's menu. How many billionaires do you think can actually name an item that's on the McDonald's menu? Donald Trump can do that, and and it means something to people on the ground when he shows up. Gene. Yes, I, I just want to point out something here as a, as a, uh, uh, I think a general aspect of what is, has occurred in the relationship of government to the American people. What you are seeing here, uh, as illustrated by Buttigieg, is uh, what I call uh, government technocracy. These are people who tell you that they believe in science. I don't believe in science. I apply science as a tool. But these people believe in science, though they don't understand it, and that becomes their rationale for conducting all their actions because this is what we see the science saying. You are just a mere citizen of lower, uh, uh, of, of lower educational posture and could not understand what the science says, and we are implementing this science on your behalf. Donald Trump, on the other hand, as you pointed out, he is a people person. A lot of people don't appreciate that. And you can ask Rudy Giuliani, who one of his biggest supporters in action uh, at, uh, at 9-11 was Donald Trump and the Trump enterprise providing background support for the city's recovery. And we don't hear that. Gene, thanks for the call. I uh, appreciate you bringing all that up. You're exactly right. Rudy Giuliani's relationship with Donald Trump uh, didn't didn't necessarily start with uh, what happened on 9/11, but it certainly was solidified by those events because of the response you correctly uh, cited of uh, of tr- of Donald Trump in supporting the mayor and the efforts to try to recover from those attacks. All right, here's uh, there's something else that we need to mention here. You're going to be hearing a lot about this is really Trump's fault. And of course, that is not. <laughs> there's there's no way that's going to fly. I mean, I, I can't believe the political instincts of these people that they actually think that they can that Buttigieg can just run out there and say, "Well, the Trump administration reversed regulatory uh, re- requirements that that would have prevented this accident from taking place." That's just a lie. Um, here, listen to the Wall Street Journal. They, they give a good history and background about what actually has been happening with rail safety and who could be counted as being responsible for uh, this accident. And by the way, the, pers- the, the person responsible for the accident, it, it was an accident, okay? You, it, when you live in a country of 300, what, 340 million people, and you've got the vast amount of space that the United States covers, there are going to be accidents. When you've got that number of trains, 
Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to do everything we can to prevent an accident from happening, but just the amount of trains that are running um, and, and the amount of people that are involved, there's, there's gonna, there are going to be accidents from time to time. We need to know, can we make it safer? And the answer is always yes. We discover things that can make rail safety better, but you cannot prevent every accident. If you think the government, and, that, and that's one of the fallacies of government, they come in and try to convince you as, as a citizen, all you need to do is give your life over to the government. If you'll just surrender more of your freedom to our control, we're, we will protect you from every calamity. We'll, we'll pass regulations that are going to put ex just tremendous cost on the general public, but we're going to guarantee that these things are never going to happen again. Now, they can't guarantee that. They only use it as an opportunity to gain more control, functional control, over the population, grow the size of government, put more regulation on business, make it more difficult for businesses to to uh, to have a profit, which is the point. And that's that's another problem with a lot of these people that are in government today. They're Marxist. They don't understand capitalism. Don't even know how it works. And so, when when they put these regulations out there that can curtail the profitability of a business at minimal. Safety. I mean, when, when I say minimal, I'm talking about that some of these regulations they were talking about, it was determined would have almost no effect, but would cost a ton of money. Okay, let me just go through this Wall Street Journal article because it really does give a good history of regulation, regulation and will help you to sort of understand when you hear the accusation that the Trump administration is responsible for this. If you have this information, you can push back against that because it's just, it's not true. Um, it, it's, I guess you could say it's one of those things that, yes, it's true that the Trump administration pushed back on the regulations that the Obama administration was, was trying to put into place. But it's the, the reason that they pushed back is because the purpose of those regulations became very clear in terms of trying to shut down the ability of the railroad to transport oil. All right, so just keep that in mind. Mr. Buttigieg cites a 2015 Obama administration regulation mandating electronically controlled pneumatic braking, that would be ECP, on some trains carrying flammable liquids such as oil. See, now, now we're getting to the real agenda here. You know, you... Oh, this is all about safety. It's about rail safety. It's about protecting the population. It's about making sure that the railroads are not being slack in their safety procedures. No, it's about the Obama administration and progressives who are pushing the global warming climate agenda from being able. It's about them putting regulations on the railroad industry that would make it almost impossible for them from a financial standpoint to transport oil. First, you shut down the pipelines. Then you make it just cost prohibitive for the railroad industry to move oil back and forth across the country. EC brakes apply pressure throughout trains instantaneously, unlike conventional brakes in which each car receives a signal sequentially through an air pipe. The costly rule provided marginal safety benefits, 
but it would have advanced the left's anti-fossil fuel agenda. First, block pipelines, then make it prohibitively expensive to move oil by rail. Industry groups sued. Congress instructed the Transportation Department to reevaluate its analysis, and they asked the Government Accountability Office to do an, an assessment. In 2016, the GAO identified a myriad of problems with the government's cost-benefit analysis, and the Trump administration rescinded the rule in 2018. So the Trump administration, what, what Buttigieg would like for you to think is that President Trump just said, well, we, we love big business. We, we like the rail companies, and we're going to deregulate, and we're just going to deregulate without any thought to safety. That's not what happened. The Government Accountability Office did an assessment. The National Transportation Safety Board did a genuine assessment and saying that the safety advantages of this would be minimal. The cost would be prohibitive to many of the, of the railroad companies, and, and they were going to put this, I, I can't overemphasize this, they were going to put this requirement primarily on trains that were transporting oil. So it became a fossil fuel question. So uh, there's no evidence, by the way, that ECP brakes would have prevented the derailment and the Obama rule wouldn't have applied to the Norfolk Southern train anyway because it wasn't classified as a high-hazard flammable unit train. You know how you get that? Oh, that's right. You get that if you're transporting oil, not the stuff that you make glue out of and some of these other hazardous chemicals. Mr. Buttigieg also criticized Norfolk Southern and other railroads for deploying technology to inspect tracks, which labor unions oppose. Now, this is, this is where we get right down to it. You've got President Trump looking, asking for an assessment of the actual impact of a rule, discovering that its impact costs way too much and offers way too little safety requirements, so he does away with the rule. Then you've got Buttigieg looking at what the railroad is doing, using technology to inspect the tracks, which can pick up things much quicker than the human eye can pick them up. But the unions are opposed to it because it might put somebody's job in jeopardy. And, and so safety all of a sudden doesn't matter so much if one of your biggest political supporters, the unions in this country, are going to be affected in any way. All of a sudden, they don't care much about safety. They care about it if it impedes fossil fuel production, if it shuts down, helps shut down the oil industry, make it more expensive and then eventually prohibitive for from being able to move oil from point A to point B, that's fine. But if a union worker is about to lose their job because they've got technology in place that actually makes the track safer, then forget about safety because we've got to protect the union jobs. That's what this comes down to. Um, automatic inspections, automated, I should say, inspections are more efficient and can detect, can detect safety problems better and more quickly than the human eye. But Biden regulators have limited the technology's use, and there's no evidence it contributed to the derailment. So, there, again, I'm not saying that this would have contributed to the derailment, but what I'm saying is that the Biden administration limits the technology because the unions don't like it. 
So this becomes political. For and and for Trump, it was actually where reports were generated, um, information was shared, it was gathered and shared, and the president made a decision based on the recommendation of the Government Accountability Office and even his own National Transportation Safety Board. But with the with the the Biden administration, the only thing that matters is are we dealing with the union people? Is that what it is? Then whatever they want, uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna supply that for them. Doesn't matter about track safety as long as the union's happy. Mr. Buttigieg also claimed that the accident supports the need for union-backed regulations requiring a minimum of two crew members on trains. Technology is making it safer and more efficient to operate freight trains with one worker in the cab, as many passenger trains do. Regardless, the East Palestine train had three crew members. Another Buttigieg red herring, paid sick leave. Now, get, get this. Paid sick leave will make trains safer. Buttigieg said a healthy and well-supported workforce is a safer workforce. Again, there's no evidence that there's a shortage of paid sick leave or that a shortage of paid sick leave contributed to the disaster. And why is the relitigating of a fight between the unions and the railroads that his boss and Congress settled late last year? What's up with that? That. They've already averted a rail strike that would have crippled the country by giving the unions pretty much everything that they wanted. Now, why do you want to come back now and be critical and open up that can of worms again? As the transportation secretary, uh, that is not in keeping with your job, sir, and trying to keep the trains running, okay? Demands by four railroad unions for more paid sick leave nearly resulted in a crippling national rail strike last fall, but Congress passed and President Biden signed legislation imposing a contract that grant unions a 24% pay raise over five years, plus an unscheduled day of sick leave on top of the existing railroad policies that offer an average of three weeks of vacation. Mr. Buttigieg also flogs $18 billion that Norfolk Southern has reportedly spent on buying back its own stock and dividends in the past five years, which he suggests came at the expense of safety. But there's no evidence of that either. Train derailments have fallen by half since 2023 and by more than 80% since 1980, even as deregulation has made railroads more efficient and profitable. See this again, these people are Marxist. You understand? They are Marxist. They don't even understand capitalism. The more the railroad company makes in profit, the more money it has to invest in safety. It is in their best interest to invest in safety because they can't be profitable if they keep running off the tracks. So if they will just leave the whole thing alone, it will work. Norfolk Southern will figure this out. But no, we've got to demonize the railroad. We've got to uplift the unions. We've got to stop the transportation of oil. And right there, ladies and gentlemen, is a woke, progressive agenda that is hurting the country. And they're using a tragedy to highlight an agenda items for the Biden administration. And that's why people are so fed up with this government. I mean, when President Trump, you want to know why he's going to why he's likely going to be elected again? Because of this? Because when the people are in trouble, he talks to the people. 
when the people are in trouble with the Biden administration, they talk to each other. They think bureaucracy, because they believe the government has the answer to every problem, every problem, is what needs to be rolled into East Palestine. And believe me, the people there know better. You know, um, I really need to turn the camera around so that you can see. We got we got a call coming in. Uh, we no no no. I mean, we need to answer it quickly. That's the the point here. Um, we uh, it, it should turn the camera around so you can see Gary Miller was he was playing a mean air piano on that uh, ABBA song. I mean, you should his fingers, man, were running up and down that table in front of the board. So anyway, you know, old people still have fun. <laughs> That's a good lesson I think to be learned from this show. Um, and I, you know, I, I just got to tell you, um, you know, I don't want to get way deep into this cause I'll get all mushy. Um, but I'm really going to miss, I mean, I'm going to keep doing the show, but I'm not going to have Gary there. And I wish there was some way that I could coax him to just come into the house every morning <laughs> and sitting there, but I, it's not going to happen. He's going to be sitting out on the beach and that's where he deserves to be. All right, Barbara, thanks for calling. Is it Beverly? Oh, is it Beverly? Well, uh, I do not believe Gary messed up my name. Oh. Well, it says Barbara Biggest Day right there, so yes, yes, Beverly. Well, okay, since I'm trying to be a smart aleck, I guess this will be good. So I'll just change my name to Barbara. Yesterday, when I was watching Pete Buttigieg, all I could think of was Curious George. He looked <laughs> like Curious George, but I have to change his name to Non-Curious Pete. But anybody who wants to Google it, look at Curious George with his little vest and his little clothes that don't fit and toddling around. That's who he looks like all day. I know. I've, I've seen some of those memes, and boy, have they been excoriated because of comparing him to Curious George. So, but, he, but he I get it. He just looks like Curious George. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, Beverly. I appreciate you reminding us about that. Um, thanks, Barbara. Yeah. <laughs> In incognito, it's uh, it was it was Beverly masquerading as a Barbara. Um, it's a good thing she wasn't a Sheila or maybe a Karen. She's never been a Karen. Um, when you look back at President Trump and you start thinking about all of the ways that the Trump haters have tried to take him down. I mean, it, I'm, I'm not going to recount them all on this program because it'd take the rest of the show. But, you know, you think about the Mueller investigation. We spent all this money. We had all these investigators, had all these lawyers, all these uh, people involved in that process. And it came down to fraudulently obtain FISA warrants. It came down to a corrupt FBI. It came down to the Clinton campaign doing opposition research and that opposition research being taken seriously by people. Um, and all of that came to nothing as it related to Donald Trump. The only th the only process crimes they discovered in any of that was when they uncovered and, um, you know, some of the, uh, the people that were close to Trump, Manafort, others, it turns out they'd been involved in some shaky deals um, but even those cases were just questionable, to say the least. So you've got all this going. And then, you know, we, we know we know we've got him. We've got him with this New York prosecution. This is it. When you've got the state of New York going after Donald Trump, you can just imagine how much corruption there would be in his company. And it comes to nothing. I mean, you're talking about 
um, some fines and, uh, you know, one person was granted immunity and that was supposed to be the big get because that person was going to be revealing all of the Donald Trump dirty laundry turned out to be nothing. So then we get the document scandal. You know, we get the, well, we get the, the January 6th, which I'm still, pre President Trump handled that extremely poorly, okay, still in my mind. But the, the, you, you've got the, this idea that they're going to impeach him. And, and, of course, they impeached him twice. And two times it came to nothing. And then you get, you know, the document scandal. And just at the moment when it looks like the Justice Department might actually be building a case for obstruction of justice. Now, they, they were never going to go after him just about the documents because it, that was just going to be too thin. But the fact that there was maybe obstruction, maybe uh, his attorneys, maybe Trump, the president himself, had, had not been forthcoming with federal investigators, maybe that was going to be the path, that they that finally we're going to get him. And they come back with air because President Biden, turns out, has been stowing away documents since, I mean, for years, since he way back when he was a senator. And so now that that's kind of been gone up in a puff of smoke. Well, now you've got the grand jury down in Georgia, and I think everybody— was beginning to think, all the Trump haters, they, they were beginning to think that they really had something here, that this grand jury was going to come back, was going to unload on him, and he was going to be found guilty of trying to interfere in the elections in Georgia. And then along comes someone who is very an unassuming type person, uh, someone that you wouldn't think would turn out to be another uh, character that was going to open the possibility of a door of escape for President Trump here. Her name's Emily Coors, and Emily Coors was the foreperson on the Georgia grand jury that's been working on this for months. And, you know, a lot of people get on grand juries. They just want to do their job. They want to remain anonymous, and they want to go home. But not Emily Coors. And there are people like that. This was her five minutes of fame. This was her Andy, her 15 minutes. This was her Andy Warhol moment here where she was going to burst onto the scene. And so she makes this, the Trump derangement syndrome circuit, goes to CNN, MSNBC, the New York Times, all these outlets. Everybody wants to interview her. And the press can't help themselves. They just can't because they've got somebody they can talk to that's going to talk bad about Trump and maybe dish a little dirt. And, and they can't resist that. Even though this is the jury foreman, four person, who is not supposed to be talking about this at all. The judge in the case said, zip it. Don't go out and talk about this because you could influence the jury pool. The prosecutors in the case are livid with her. Now, let me give you just a little uh, example. This is her on uh, out front on CNN, and you can just tell. I mean, she's giddy about this. By the way, she's also a witch. Now, they've expunged all this. and I really shouldn't say witch because you have to say Wiccan. That's the politically correct term. But she's got 
stuff posted on social media that shows how to do incantations, you know, the the things that you need to collect from nature in order to put a spell on somebody. I mean, she's she's out there, way out there. And now she's out there on the Trump derangement syndrome network tour, basically poking holes in the prosecution case against Donald Trump by running her mouth. I really don't want to share something that the judge made a conscious decision not to share. I, I will tell you that it was a process where we heard his name a lot. Trump's name. Uh, we definitely heard a lot about former President Trump, and we definitely discussed him a lot in the room. And I will say that uh, when this list comes out, you wouldn't... There are no major plot twists waiting for you. I don't want to speak out on something that the judge, like I said, consciously chose not to release at this point. I don't know if I would interfere with the DA's investigations. I don't know if I would interfere with procedures in some way. I just, I very much do not want to cross that line. Yeah, but she did. She's already crossed the line. She talked about the fact that they talked about Trump all the time. And there's going to be no major plot twist. I mean, just go ahead. Emily, what, what? You, you, you didn't eat your Wheaties this morning? You got a little, you got a little shyness going on here? Just come on out and say, yeah, we got him. Nailed him. Where do you see these charges coming? Yeah, she just as well say that when she goes as far as she did talking about grand jury deliberations. Grand jury deliberations are sealed for a reason. They're sealed so that the jury pool doesn't become tainted. How hard do you think it's going to be after she's been on all these Trump derangement syndrome networks talking about this to find people who say, oh, yeah, I don't know anything about this. I don't have any preconceived notion. Oh, that do you have you ever heard the name Emily Coors? Oh, is she the Wiccan that went on television and was talking about uh, there weren't going to be any plot twists and they talked about Trump? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know her. (laughs) That's going to be a problem. Now, before you get all excited. I, I've heard a lot of commentators yesterday as I was listening to different podcasts talking about this is going to sink the case. Prosecutors know that they don't have a chance. Forget it. Okay. They don't throw out cases like this based on uh, grand juries that don't behave properly. Okay. It's not good. The defense is going to be able to use this. If charges are brought, no charges have been brought so far. But if they do, the defense will use this in defense of President Trump should he be indicted. But I, I don't put a, don't put a lot of hope in the fact that this is going to bring an end, or they're not even going to bring charges because of this. It's not likely that this would affect the final decision about charges or even get the case thrown out of court. Some people were suggesting yesterday that the judges are going to have a hard time keeping this case before a jury. I I don't think so. I think that the lawyers will make that case, but you know, I've been reading Andrew McCarthy and he's a pretty smart guy when it comes to the legal system. And he says, all you have to do is go back and look at recent history. Judges, are not going to throw out entire cases based on the misconduct of a juror that was on the grand jury, unless it's a lot more than what Emily Coors did. She shouldn't have done it. It's going to give Trump a better defense, but it's not going to sink the case against him.